Section 13 of A Description of Millennium Hall and the Country Adjacent by A Gentleman on His Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. A Description of Millennium Hall and the Country Adjacent by Sarah Scott. Section 13. The History of Miss Selvin. Mr. Selvin, the younger brother of an ancient family, whose fortune was inferior to the rank it held in the country where it had long been fixed, was placed in trade in London, but his success not answering his hopes, he gave it up before it was too late to secure himself a small subsistence, and retired into the country when Miss Selvin was about five years old. His wife had been dead two years. Thus, his little girl's education devolved entirely on himself. He bred her up genteelly, though his fortune was small, and as he was well qualified for the part, became himself her tutor, and executed that office so well, that at twelve years old, she excelled all the young ladies in the neighborhood of her own age in french and riding either for hand or style and in the great propriety and grace with which she read english she had no small knowledge of accounts and had made some progress in the study of history her person was elegant and pleasing and her temper and manner perfectly engaging but yet these charms could not induce the neighboring families to forgive her for excelling other girls in her accomplishments. They censured Mr. Selvin for giving his daughter an education to which her fortune was so little suited, and thought he would have done better to have bred her up to housewifery and qualified her for the wife of an honest tradesman, for part of what he had was known to be a life income, a small sinecure having been procured him by his friends in town before he retired into the country. The censures of those who loved to shew their own wisdom by blaming others had little effect on Mr. Selvin. He continued his diligence in cultivating his little girl's mind, and even taught himself many things that he might be able to instruct her. If he did not breed her up in a manner to gain a subsistence by the most usual means, he, however, qualified her to subsist on little. He taught her true frugality without narrowness of mind, and made her see how few of all the expenses the world ran into were necessary to happiness. He deprived her of all temptation to purchase pleasures by instructing her to seek only in herself for them, and by the various accomplishments he had given her, prevented that vanity of mind which leads people to seek external amusements. The day was not sufficient for her employments, therefore she could not be reduced to trifle away any part of it for fear of its lying heavy on her hands. Thus Miss Selvin was bred a philosopher from her cradle, but was better instructed in the doctrine of the ancient moralists than in the principles of Christianity. 
mr selvin was not absolutely a freethinker he had no vices that made him an enemy to christianity nor that pride which tempts people to contradict a religion generally received he did not apprehend that disbelief was a proof of wisdom nor wished to lessen the faith of others but was in himself sceptical he doubted of what he could not entirely comprehend and seemed to think those things at least improbable which were not level to his understanding he avoided the subject with miss selvin he could not teach her what he did not believe but chose to leave her free to form that judgment which should in time seem most rational to her i could not forbear interrupting mrs maynard to signify my approbation of mr selvin's conduct in this particular as the only instance i had ever met with of a candid mind in one who had a tendency toward infidelity for i never knew any who were not angry with those that believed more than themselves and who were not more eager to bring others over to their opinions than most foreign missionaries yet surely nothing can be more absurd for these men will not dare to say that the virtues which christianity requires are not indispensable duties on the contrary they would have us imagine they are most sincerely attached to them what advantage then can accrue to any one from being deprived of the certainty of a reward for his obedience if we deny revelation we must acknowledge this point to be very uncertain it is the subject of dispute and doubt among all the philosophers of antiquity and we have but a poor dependence for so great a blessing if we rest our expectation where they did theirs can a man therefore be rendered happier by being deprived of this certainty or can we suppose he will be more virtuous because we have removed all the motives that arise from hope and fear and yet what else can excuse an infidel's desire to make converts nothing nor can anything occasion it but a secret consciousness that he is in the wrong which tempts him to wish for the countenance of more associates in his error this likewise can alone give rise to his rancor against those who believe more than himself he feels them a tacit reproach to him which to his pride is unsupportable but said lamont do you imagine that a freethinker may not be certain of a future state not positively answered mrs maynard if he is certain of that point he is a believer without owning it he must have had his certainty from scripture all the reason he boasts can only shew it probable and that probability is loaded with so many difficulties as will much weaken hope where can reason say immortality shall stop we must allow that omnipotence may bestow it on such ranks of being as he pleases but how can reason tell us to whom he has given it whether to all creation or no part of it pride indeed makes man claim it for himself but deny it to others and yet the superior intelligence perceivable in some brutes to what appears in some of his own species should raise doubts in him who has nothing but the reasonings of his own weak brain to go upon but to proceed with my subject 
the minister of the parish wherein mr selvin dwelt was a gentleman of great learning and strict probity he had every virtue in the most amiable degree and a gentleness and humility of mind which is the most agreeable characteristic of his profession he had a strong sense of the duties of his function and dedicated his whole time to the performance of them he did not think his instructions should be confined to the pulpit but sensible that the ignorant were much more effectually taught in familiar conversation than by preaching he visited frequently the very poorest of his parishioners and by the humility of his behavior as much as by his bounty for he distributed a great part of his income among the necessitous he gained the affections of the people so entirely that his advice was all-powerful with them this gentleman's great recreation was visiting mr selvin whose sense and knowledge rendered his conversation extremely entertaining and miss selvin's company was a great addition to the good minister's pleasure he took delight in seeing her as hamlet says bear her faculties so meekly she was entirely void of conceit and vanity and did not seem to have found out that her knowledge exceeded that of most persons of her age at least she looked upon it as a casual advantage which reflected no honor to herself but was entirely owing to mr selvin her youthful cheerfulness enlivened the party without rendering the conversation less solid and her amiable disposition made the good minister particularly anxious for her welfare he soon found out mr selvin's scepticism and endeavored to remove it he represented to him that his not being able to understand the most mysterious parts of christianity was no argument against the truth of them that there were many things in nature whose certainty he by no means doubted and yet was totally ignorant of the methods whereby many of them operated and even of the use of some of them could he say what purpose the fiery comet answers how is its motion produced so regular in its period so unequal in its motion and so eccentric in its course of many other things man is in reality as ignorant only being able to form a system which seems to suit in some particulars he imagines he has discovered the whole and will think so till some new system takes place and the old one is exploded he asked mr selvin if they descended to the meanest objects in what manner could they account for the polypus's property of supplying that part of its body which shall be cut away that insect alone of all the creation does not continue maimed by amputation but multiplies by it to what can we attribute this difference in an insect which in all particulars beside resembles so many others yet who doubts of the reality of these things if we cannot comprehend the smallest works of almighty wisdom can we expect to fathom that wisdom itself and say that such things he cannot do or cannot choose because the same effects could be produced by other means man no doubt might exert the same functions under another form why then has he this he now wears who will not reply because his maker chose it and chose it as seeing it best 
Is not this the proper answer on all occasions, when the decrees of the Almighty are discussed? Facts only are obvious to our reason. We must judge of them by the evidence of their reality, if that is sufficient to establish the facts. Why, or how, they were produced is beyond our comprehension. Let us learn that finite minds cannot judge of infinite wisdom, and confine our reason within its proper sphere. By these and many other arguments, Mr. Selvin was brought to believe the possibility of what he did not comprehend, and by this worthy clergyman's care, Miss Selvin was early taught the truths of Christianity, which, though the most necessary of all things, was at first the only one neglected. In this retired situation they continued till Miss Selvin was near seventeen years old. Mr. Selvin then determined to remove to London, and taking a small house in Park Street, fixed his abode there. Lady Amelia Reynolds lived next door, and soon after their arrival made them a visit, a compliment, she said, she looked upon as due to so near a neighbor. Some other ladies in the street followed her example, and in a very short time Miss Selvin was introduced into as large an acquaintance as was agreeable to her, for she was naturally averse to much dissipation. Lady Amelia Reynolds was a single lady of very large fortune, her age upwards of thirty, her person fine, her manner gentle and pleasing, and an air of dejection did not render her countenance the less engaging. She was grave and sensible, and kept a great deal of good company without entering into a gay way of life. Miss Selvin's modesty and good sense seemed to have great charms for her. She cultivated a friendship with her, notwithstanding some disparity in their ages, and neither of them appeared so happy as when they were together. Mr. Selvin could not be displeased at an intimacy so desirable, nor could Miss Selvin be more properly introduced into the world than by a person of Lady Amelia's respectable character. At her house Miss Selvin saw a great deal of good company, and was so generally liked that many entreated Lady Amelia to bring her to them whenever her ladyship favoured them with a visit. These invitations were generally complied with, as under such a protectress Miss Selvin might properly venture to any place. Lady Sheerness was one of this number, whose rank and some degree of relationship brought acquainted with Lady Amelia, though the different turn of their minds and their very opposite taste of life prevented any intimacy between them. Lady Amelia was not blind to Lady Sheerness's follies, but she esteemed them objects of her compassion, not of her censure. Nicely circumspect in her own conduct, she judged with the extremest lenity of the behavior of others, ready to attempt excusing them to the world, and not even suffering herself to blame what she could not approve. She sincerely pitied Lady Mary Jones, who seemed by fortune sacrificed to folly, and she was in continual fear lest she should fall a victim to that imprudence which in her case was almost unavoidable. By this means 
Miss Selvin became acquainted with Lady Mary, and was the young woman I before mentioned as Lady Mary's adviser and conductor in putting an end to Lord Robert St. George's courtship. Not long after she had the satisfaction of thus assisting a young lady whose failings gave her almost as many charms as they robbed her of, she had the misfortune to lose Mr. Selvin. All that a child could feel for the loss of a tender parent, Miss Selvin suffered. His death was not so sudden, but that it afforded him time to settle his affairs and to give every direction to Miss Selvin which he thought might save her from all embarrassment on the approaching event. He recommended to her, as her fortune would be but small, to attach herself as much as possible to Lady Emilia, since now she became still more necessary as a protectress than she had before been desirable as a friend, and that interest, as much as gratitude, required her cultivating the affection that lady had already shown her. The latter motive was sufficient to influence Miss Selvin, whose heart sincerely returned the regard Lady Amelia had for her, but at that time she was too much affected with Mr. Selvin's approaching dissolution to think of anything else. His care for her in his last moments still more endeared him, who through life had made her happiness his principal study. Her affliction was extreme, nor could Lady Amelia by the tenderest care for some time afford her any consolation. Miss Selvin found herself heiress to three thousand pounds, a fortune which exceeded her expectation, though it was not sufficient to suffer her to live in London with convenience. Lady Amelia invited her to her house, and as the spring advanced, her ladyship, inclining to pass the fine season in the country, hired a house about a hundred miles from London, which she had formerly been fond of, and was but just become empty. She had been but little out of town for some years, and went to her new habitation with pleasure. Miss Selvin bid adieu without regret to everything but Lady Mary Jones, for whom she had conceived a real affection, which first took its rise from compassion and was strengthened by the great docility with which she followed her advice about Lord Robert and the resolution with which she conquered her inclination. Lady Mary grieved to lose one whom she esteemed so prudent and faithful a friend, and considered her departure as a real misfortune, but they agreed to keep up a regular correspondence as the best substitute to conversation. The country was perfectly agreeable to Lady Amelia and her young friend. The life they led was most suitable to their inclinations, and winter brought with it no desires to return to London whereupon Lady Amelia disposed of her house there, and settled quite in the country. They were both extremely fond of reading, and in this they spent most of their time. Their regular way of life, and the benefits of air and exercise, seemed to abate the dejection before so visible in Lady Amelia, and she never appeared to want any other conversation than that of Miss Selvin, whom she loved with a tenderness so justly due to her merit. After they had been settled about two years in the country, Lord Robert St. George, who
who was colonel of a regiment quartered in town not far from them, came to examine into the state of his regiment, and having at that time no other engagement, and the lodgings he had taken just out of town being finely situated, he determined to make some stay there. Here he renewed his slight acquaintance with Lady Amelia and Miss Selvin, and by favour of his vicinity saw them often. Lord Robert's heart was too susceptible of soft impressions not to feel the influence of Miss Selvin's charms. He was strongly captivated by her excellent understanding and engaging manner. As for her person, he had known many more beautiful, though none more pleasing. But the uncommon turn of her mind, her gentleness and sensible modesty, had attractions that were irresistible. Lord Robert's attachment soon became visible, but Miss Selvin knew him too well to think his addresses very flattering, and by his behavior to Lady Mary Jones feared some insulting declaration. But from these apprehensions he soon delivered her. Real affection conquering that assurance which nature had first given and success increased, he had not courage to declare his passion to her, but applied to Lady Amelia to acquaint her friend with his love, and begged her interest in his behalf, fearing that without it Miss Selvin's reserve would not suffer her to listen to his addresses. Lady Amelia promised to report all he had said, and accordingly gave Miss Selvin a circumstantial account of the whole conversation, wherein Lord Robert had laid before her the state of his fortune, which was sufficient for a woman of her prudence, and she added that she did not see how Miss Selvin could expect to be addressed by a man more eligible, whether she considered his birth, his fortune, or his person and accomplishments. Miss Selvin was a little surprised that so gay a man should take so serious a resolution. She allowed the justness of what Lady Amelia said in his favor, and confessed that it was impossible Lord Robert could fail of pleasing, but added that it could not be advisable for her to marry, for enjoying perfect content, she had no benefit to expect from change, and happiness was so scarce a commodity in this life that whoever let it once slip had little reason to expect to catch it again. For what reason, then, should she alter her state? The same disposition which would render Lord Robert's fortune sufficient made hers answer all her wishes since if she had not the joy of living with her ladyship it would still afford her everything she desired lady amelia said some things in recommendation of marriage and seemed to think it improbable miss selvin should not be a little prejudiced in favour of so amiable a lover as lord robert which tempted that young lady to tell her that though she allowed him excessively pleasing yet by some particulars which formerly came to her knowledge, she was convinced his principles were such as would not make her happy in a husband. Lady Amelia allowed the force of such an objection, and did not press a marriage, for she had pleaded only out of an apprehension, lest Miss Selvin's reserve might lead her to act contrary to her inclinations, and therefore she had endeavoured to facilitate her declaration in favour of Lord Robert. 
if she was in reality inclined to accept his proposals. She acquiesced then readily to her friend's determination, only desired she would herself acquaint Lord Robert with it, as he would not easily be silenced by a refusal which did not proceed from her own lips. His lordship came in the evening to learn his fate, and Lady Amelia, having contrived to be absent, he found Miss Selvin alone. Though this was what he had wished, yet he was so disconcerted that Miss Selvin was reduced to begin the subject herself, and to tell him that Lady Amelia had acquainted her with the honour he had done her, that she was so much obliged to him for his good opinion, and hoped he would be happy with some woman much more deserving than herself. But she could by no means accept the favour he intended her, being so entirely happy in her present situation that nothing in the world would induce her to change it. This declaration gave rise to a very warm contest, Lord Robert soliciting her to accept his love with all the tenderness of the strongest passion, and she, with equal perseverance, persisting in her refusal. He could not be persuaded that her motive for doing so was really what she alleged, but as she continued to affirm it, he begged, however, to know if she had not made so strange a resolution in favor of a single life, whether she should have had any particular objection to him. Miss Selvin shewed the uselessness of this question, since the reason of her refusing the honor he intended her would have made her reject the addresses of every other man in the world. Lord Robert could not believe this possible, and therefore desisted not from urging a question so disagreeable to answer. When Miss Selvin found it impossible to avoid satisfying him in this particular, she told him that if he were entirely unexceptionable, she would be fixed in the same determination. But since he insisted on knowing if she had any objection to him, she was obliged to confess that had she been better inclined to enter into the matrimonial state, his lordship was not the man she should have chosen not from any dislike to his person or understanding, but from the disapprobation of his principles, that, in regard to her sex, he had a lightness in his way of thinking, and had been so criminal in his conduct, that of all men she knew, she thought him most improper for a husband. Lord Robert was surprised at so new an objection, and told her that he did not apprehend himself more blamable in those respects than most young men. Gallantry was suitable to his age, and he never imagined that any woman would have reproached him with his regard for her sex, when he gave so strong a proof of an inclination to leave them all for her. "'I am sorry,' replied Miss Selvin, "'that your lordship,' thinks me mean enough to take pleasure in such a triumph, or so vain as to imagine I can reform a man of dissolute manners, the last thing I should hope or endeavor to succeed in. Such a tincture of corruption will always remain the mind of what you are pleased to term a gallant man, to whom I should give the less polite appellation of vicious, that I could not be happy in his society." A reformed rake may be sober, but is never virtuous. 
Lord Robert, growing very urgent to know what she had particularly to lay to his charge, she told him frankly that his treatment of Lady Mary Jones had disgusted her, as she, and perhaps she only, had been acquainted with the whole. Lord Robert endeavoured to excuse himself on the encouragement Lady Mary's levity had given to his hopes, observing that when a woman's behaviour was very light, his sex were not apt to imagine there was any great fund of virtue, nor could it be expected that any one else should guard that honour of which she herself was careless. "'I am sure,' replied Miss Selvin, "'that your lordship's hopes must have been founded on Lady Mary's folly, "'not her real want of innocence, "'a folly which arose from the giddiness of youth "'and the hurry of dissipation. "'For by nature Lady Mary's understanding is uncommonly good. "'By what you say, you imagined her honour was lawful prize "'because she appeared careless of it. "'Would this way of arguing be allowed in any other case?' If you observed a man who neglected to lock up his money, and seemed totally indifferent what became of it, should you think yourself thereby justified in robbing him? But how much more criminal would you be, were you to deprive him of his wealth because he was either so thoughtless or so weak as to not know its value? And yet, surely the injury in this case would be much less than what you think so justifiable." If the world has but the least sense of real honour, in this light they must see it, and to that tribunal I imagine you only think yourself answerable. For did you reflect but one moment on another bar before which you will be summoned? You would see there can be no excuse for violating the laws by which you are there to be tried. If you could justify yourself to the world, or to the women of whose folly you take advantage, by the fallacious arguments which you have so ready for that purpose, such cobweb sophistry cannot weaken the force of an express command. I will not pretend, answered Lord Robert, to deny the truth of what you say, but must beg you will consider it more easy for you to urge these truths than for those to obey them who are exposed to and susceptible of temptations." When a woman has no title to our respect, how difficult is it to consider her in the light you require? Levity of conduct we are apt to look upon as an invitation, which a man scarcely thinks it consistent with his politeness to neglect. I wish, replied Miss Selvin, that women were better acquainted with the ways of thinking so common with your sex, for while they are ignorant of them, they act to a great disadvantage. They obtain, by that levity which deprives them of your esteem, a degree of notice and pretended liking which they mistake for approbation. Did they but know that you in your hearts despise those most to whom you are most assiduously and openly attached, it would occasion a great change in their behavior, nor would they suffer an address to which they cannot listen without incurring your contempt. How criminally deceitful is this behavior! And what real virtue can a man truly boast who acts in this manner? What woman in her senses can enter into a union for life with such a man? Why not, madam, said Lord Robert? 
My behavior to you shews that we yield to merit the homage it deserves. You would lose all your triumph were we to put you in the lighter part of your sex on an equality in our opinions. We are always ready to esteem a woman who will give us leave to do so, and can you require us to respect those who are not in the least respectable? No, answered Miss Selvin. I only wish you would cease your endeavors to render those women objects of contempt, who deserve only to be neglected, and particularly not to deprive them of the very small portion of regard they are entitled to by the fallacious appearance of an attachment of the tenderest kind, which in reality arises from contempt, not love. But, added she, I have said more than I designed on the subject. I only meant to answer the question you put to me with so much importunity, and must now confirm what I have already declared by telling you that were I inclined to marry, I would not on any account take a husband of your lordship's principles. But were you endowed with all the virtues that ever man possessed, I would not change my present happy situation for the uncertainties of wedlock. When Lord Robert found all his solicitations unavailing, he left the country and returned to London, where he hoped, by a series of diversions, to efface from his heart the real passion he had conceived for Miss Selvin. She forbore informing Lady Mary Jones, though their correspondence was frequent, of Lord Robert's courtship. She did not doubt but her ladyship was sincere when she assured her she now beheld him with the indifference he deserved, but thought to tell her she had received so very different an address from him would bear too much the air of a triumph, a meanness which her heart abhorred. Lady Amelia and Miss Selvin had lived several years in the country with great rational enjoyment when the former was seized with a fever. All the skill of her physicians proved ineffectual, and her distemper increased daily. She was sensible of the danger which threatened her life, but insisted on their telling her if they had any great hopes of her recovery, assuring them that it was of importance to her to know their opinions with the utmost frankness. Thus urged, they confess they had but little hopes. She then returned them thanks for their care, but still more for their sincerity, and with the greatest composure took leave of them desiring to be left alone with Miss Selvin, who was in tears at her bedside. Everyone else withdrew, when taking Miss Selvin in her arms and shedding a few silent tears, she afterwards thus addressed her. At the moment that I must bid you a long farewell, you will know that you have a mother in her, whom you before thought only your friend. Yes, my dearest Harriet, I am your mother, ashamed of my weakness and shocked at my guilt, while your gentle but virtuous eyes could reproach your unhappy parent, I could not prevail on myself to discover this secret to you. But I cannot carry to my grave the knowledge of a circumstance which concerns you. Yes, you are my daughter, my child, ever most dear to me, though the evidence and continual remembrancer of my crime." 
Miss Selvin imagined the distemper had now seized Lady Amelia's brain, which it had hitherto spared, and entreated her to compose herself, assuring her that what so much agitated her decaying frame was only the phantom of an overheated imagination, for her parents were well known, neither was there any mystery in her birth. "'Oh,' interrupted Lady Amelia, "'do not suspect me of delirium. "'It has pleased the Almighty to spare my senses "'throughout this severe disorder, "'with a gracious design of allowing me "'even the last moments of my life "'to complete my repentance. "'What I tell you is but true. "'Mr. Selvin knew it, "'and like a man of honor saved me from shame "'by concealing the fatal secret.' and acted the part of a father to my Harriet, without having any share in my guilt. But I see you do not yet believe me. Take this. Pulling a paper from under her pillow, herein you will find an account of the whole unfortunate affair, written a year ago, lest at the time of my death I should not be able to relate it. This will prove, by the nice connection of every circumstance, that the words therein contained are not the suggestions of madness. End of section 13